The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. The annual report of the Data Protection Commission has just been published, and I'm joined by the Data Protection Commissioner herself, Helen Dixon. Good morning and welcome. Good morning, Pat. Now, it's a, a, a volume full of uh, stats, and it would appear you've been very busy. We have been busy. I think the 2022 report, which we're publishing today, really paints a picture of the GDPR now well into implementation, uh, four to five years into its application. So we see the inbound statistics in terms of complaints coming into the Data Protection Commission relatively stable in terms of comparisons to previous years. But what we see now is that the Data Protection Commission is concluding complaints faster. We're concluding more large scale inquiries. We're now the most active enforcer of the GDPR by a long stretch across Europe. Last year, two thirds of the enforcement under the GDPR uh, was delivered by the Irish DPC. We also see uh, through the statistics, but also probably more properly through the case studies that we feature in the annual report, the regulated entities responding and striving to comply with the GDPR. They don't always achieve it, but the striving and the thinking about it is particularly important. And we also see that evidence that individuals and the public are continuing to engage very strongly with their rights under the GDPR and pushing organisations rightly to be accountable in the handling of their personal data. Um, Obviously, the big organisations, we'll talk about them and the big fines that uh, you have imposed. That's on one side, you know, very public kind of carry on. Then there are the private individuals who uh, resort to some action, some complaint because of GDPR or other data matters. Uh, how would you characterise the, the, those complaints? Are they segmented into particular categories? They tend to be. So individuals have a range of rights, as everyone knows, under the GDPR. The primary right is probably the right to access a copy of the personal data that any organisation uh, is processing. And uh, this we tend to describe as a gateway right, because once you have access to a copy of your personal data, you can then go on to exercise a right to rectification, for example, if the data is inaccurate. So your personnel file, for example. So your personnel file. So So even if they say bad things about you. And they can't redact that. They've got to tell you uh, whatever judgments they've made about your performance. Not necessarily. Of course, the rights are not absolute. So just to be clear, it's not a right to access files. It's a right to access your personal data. So what you may be entitled to is an intelligible extract and not absolutely everything. And secondly, of course, there are legitimately exemptions that can be applied in certain circumstances to pick up the example you just quoted there. If an opinion was given in confidence and on the understanding it was given in confidence in respect of an individual, there may then be circumstances. So would you be entitled to know that someone had called you a waster (laughs) <laughs> uh, but not necessarily who it was. Well, uh, if there was good performance management in play in an organisation, you should know you're a waster or <laughs> that you're thought to be a waster uh, before you're at the point of seeking access but, to a But file. that kind of thing, if someone was making a complaint about you, for example, that you were a bully, um, would you be able to know that that complaint had been made without necessarily knowing the complainant? But given a small organisation, you might be able to infer who yes, the complainant o- o- was. Of course, a- a- any individual has a right to answer uh, the allegation that's made against them and to know uh, what what allegation and complaint is made against them in order to 
uh, respond to it. And and they are very typical scenarios that we would receive in complaints, disputes within organisations uh, around performance management or other forms of interpersonal dispute. Um, and we would look at the circumstances uh, of each case. But typically you would, there would be a presumption of a right of access uh, subject then to looking at any uh, exemptions an organisation may claim. Now, looking at uh, your large-scale inquiries, and uh, in fact, the same graphic is produced on two different pages, I think on page 22 and page 10. Anyway, um, small ones, Slain Credit Union, uh, the decision was issued, they were reprimanded and a fine imposed of, of 5,000. Consultancy provider, uh, no fine imposed and a reprimand. But then you get onto the big stuff. Bank of Ireland, uh, a fine of 463,000 and a reprimand uh, uh, using certain articles of the law. Uh, Meta, Facebook in other words, 17 million of uh, a fine. Twitter International, uh, no fine and one. Um, their Instagram, 405 million of a fine. Uh, Facebook for data scraping, 265 million. Uh, Meta Instagram, in this case, 180 million. That was in December. Uh, again, in December, 210 million fine. A lot of money floating around there. Now, in some cases, no fine at all, maybe because of the minor nature of the offence or maybe because of the size of the organisation. What happens to all that money? So once we uh, conduct a comprehensive investigation and come uh, ultimately to the findings that uh, we arrive at and consider then whether sanctions and corrective measures are warranted and as you called out, we considered they were in very many of these cases Uh, Then we finalise our decision. There is a 30-day appeal period. If no appeal is lodged, and to take, for example, the Meta 17 million fine you called out, no appeal was lodged against that. So we applied to the circuit court in November uh, last year. The case was heard, the confirmation case was heard, and the court confirmed the fine. We have since collected it. It's been lodged with the Central Exchequer in Ireland. So that's what happens. Um, it all goes into it all goes the into mall the of exchequer. the Department of Finance. <laughs> so it doesn't help to fund your operations. I know that uh, you've been calling for more and more people. There were criticisms in Europe before about maybe the lack of resources to enable you to do your job because it's a massive job. So you don't get that money back or, or does the minister take with one hand and give it back with another? No, the, the the punitive fines that we apply do not directly fund our office. And I think that's a good thing because then it would be argued the incentive that there's a perverse to fine and incentive fine and fine. to fine. Uh, in fact, we've secured uh, through Budget 2023 an additional three million in the budget of the DPC. We're now up over 26 million in terms of annual budget. So we'll recruit another 50 to 60 expert staff this year. We have about 200 staff now. And I think that table that was so good, as you pointed out, we produced it twice in the annual report. What that table shows is we're concluding large scale inquiries at pace now. And as I said earlier, we are by far the most active and lead enforcer across Europe, the UK and the EEA with two thirds of the enforcement actions in that area. Now, why do you think we are so active in uh, our complaints? Uh, Because you can't adjudicate in complaints unless you get them. So uh, the Irish are known to be particularly litigious. Uh, Are we also, you know, very 
um, concerned about our, our, our privacy and our rights to privacy. I think individuals are very concerned about that concept of of the control of their personal data and how it's used. So it may not be particularly a focus on privacy uh, and not sharing their personal information, but it's a concern with the control about how it's used and deployed by organisations in ways that may harm them. Before the GDPR came into application in 2018, the EU Commission ran a Eurobarometer survey and it showed, and it has run surveys since, it showed that there's a very high level of engagement with GDPR in Ireland, very high levels of awareness amongst the Irish public in relation to their rights and high levels of awareness of the role of the Data Protection Commission in Ireland. So it's probably that small country advantage uh, that individuals are aware. And we think it's a very good thing that they're pushing organisations in terms of being accountable with their personal data. That's driving up standards as much as public enforcement is going to in many ways. Now, you give examples of litigations in uh, which you've been uh, involved. Um, it does seem that employee-employer relations uh, are at the heart of some of these. Well, if you think about it, uh, work is such a huge part of all of our lives um, uh, it's of economic consequence to each of us individually, but but it's also a huge part of our identity. And when things go wrong in the workplace, they can be very fundamental for an individual. So on an ongoing basis, a lot of the uh, complaints that we get in uh, and then subsequently that give rise to litigation do relate to employment law disputes. Some of them, uh, as you'll see in the examples and the case studies that we've given relate to issues that have also been transacted before the Workplace Relations Commission uh, by individuals. And, and the WRC is is party to these cases, therefore? It, it can be in some cases, but I have made the point in, in previous forwards to my annual report that because uh, the Workplace Relations Commission cannot order discovery, often issues come to the DPC because individuals are trying to seek access to their personal data and also to records in order to allow them pursue the case that they're taking against their employer. And so it's actually the access request and the complaint around that uh, through which the central dispute uh, is is then played out. Uh, there's one involving the National Gallery of Ireland. Yes, that <laughs> is, is, is a long-running dispute. In fact, uh, the original complaint predates my arrival and I'm now in my ninth year in the role of being Data Protection Commissioner. It predates my arrival at the DPC uh, and and in fact it's still ongoing. It's still ongoing. proceedings have been lodged. The, the issues are now very historic. Uh, some of the principles involved in the matter are, are now unfortunately passed away. It's extremely difficult at this remove to establish the facts um, uh, but of course, under Irish law uh, and, and under the 2018 Act, there is no uh, timeline specified in terms of retroactivity of of issues that can be raised. Mm. So you see in other jurisdictions like Australia, the issue you complain of must not have occurred more than 12 months prior to the point that you lodge the complaint. Is that something we need to change here? 
Um, I don't necessarily say it's something that we need to change, but it certainly does have implications when you go to handling complaints and, and trying to look it, back it, at things you know, that are If someone historic. wants to go for a defamation action against uh, us, for example, here on News Talk, I mean, if they leave it too long, um, they won't get a hearing. Yeah, it, it, it is possibly something that could be looked at. I think 12 months is probably a little bit uh, too tight because, in fact, we also deal quite regularly with complaints from individuals about uh, stories that have been printed in newspapers about them. And of course, there's a big right to freedom of expression balancing um, uh, and the right of journalists to publish information that has to be balanced in those cases. And in some cases, uh, we would we would ask the complainant why they haven't taken the issue to the press council and that perhaps uh, it is in a more appropriate place to have the issue looked at. And they will often point out that there's a three-month deadline by which they would need to lodge a complaint there uh, and and they simply weren't in the headspace because of whatever trauma they feel they've suffered as a result of the story being published to get that complaint in on time and then they bring it to our office. So I think timelines are always something worth looking at to ensure that we're as effective as we all can be in yeah. the roles we're playing. It just seems ridiculous that uh, something that predated your own time should still be in some form of litigation, you know. It's a challenge and there's no doubt about that. And I suppose in a case like that, it's very specific to its own set of facts and probably not of any systemic importance. And actually, uh, the Court of Appeal called out this issue in a judgment that's featured in our annual report, the Doolin case last year about the length of time these cases that are of no broader systemic Mm -hmm. importance are are, uh, trundling on for. Now, another rich source of potential complaint are uh, the owner management companies of apartment complexes. And that is also something that has uh, drawn your attention. It it is. And the supervision team at the Data Protection Commission is trying to work at guidance and trying to help that sector come to sensible positions in terms of the role that owners management companies play. The types of complaints, of course, we get come from individuals who may have fallen behind on their service charges. They then have issues about minutes of of meetings of the owner's management company that record their names and uh, uh, the deficit that they're in and whether there's a legal basis for that type of recording and sharing of the minutes with all of the members of the owner's management company and so on. The, the issues... In other words, that people, uh, whether or not they can be named and shamed at the AGM. This is it, exactly, and whether there's a legal basis for this. So there are a lot of issues to do with owners, management companies, particularly when they go to try and enforce or they observe behaviour of members of the owners, management company in terms of rules of a complex uh, and seek to call out uh, the behaviour. So, uh, as I say, I think this is an important area for us to uh, try and intervene and and provide guidance to get to more sensible positions. Now, in the annual report, it also refers to the local authority CCTV scheme. This is the idea that local authorities would put up cameras that would monitor areas 24-7, areas that they designate of high crime areas. What was the issue there? So the issue in the particular data protection impact assessment that we reviewed is that uh, the advanced technology, uh, the the smart technology that the local authority was intending to implement 
was also going to have implications in terms of the monitoring, the incidental monitoring of residential properties. That uh, literally could see in a bedroom window uh, literally. If, if they controlled it because if, it was controllable. If the pan, tilt and zoom was used yeah. in such a way that, that, that it pointed in. So we had concerns that there weren't adequate safeguards in terms of how the technology in the particular uh, location was going to be deployed. Uh, and that was really largely the issue there. It, also, this technology is very, very powerful in terms of monitoring and surveilling 24-7. So we were pleased to see that following our engagement, the local authority implemented an oversight board. And that's mm. important that you have people looking uh, objectively uh, at, at what's been monitored. Because yeah. of course, now, now, they revised their position so they would not monitor 24-7 by default, but would only monitor uh, at the request of the Gardaí. Now, that kind of makes the whole system useless because that's being monitored after the fact. The crime has been committed, but you don't see the the, 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 the hood getting into the car and stealing it. Um, but the guards say, a car was stolen, uh, switch on now. Horse has bolted. What use is that? I, I don't think that's what we intended to convey there. Um, you can see dips and rises in criminal activity in certain areas and the types of crimes that are being perpetrated. So uh, if if the Gardaí notified the local authority uh, that uh, there, there was a rise in crime or they had an apprehension that there was going to be a rise in crime based on, on credible information they had, then they may even ask that local authority to turn the cameras on 24-7. Um, so we're not suggesting an after the horse is bolted, but we're suggesting that it's based on uh, objective criteria that the Gardaí would propose in, in terms of those areas. Um, what are the GDPR rights, this is from a texter, for employees who have tracking devices uh, put on their vans by their employers? So we have featured a number of case studies in the past in our annual report in relation to that issue. Um, and uh, there are different sectors that deploy those tracking technologies. For example, ambulances will have tracking technologies uh, so that the dispatcher can know uh, how, how close uh, to a, a medical emergency a, a given ambulance is. So it really all depends on the sector, the reason why the tracking technology is there. But in general terms, the tracking is there for a purpose. I gave the ambulance example. But even, say, a, a tradesman who's out uh, doing emergency repairs, would the employer have the right to put a tracker on the van? So if they get a call, uh, which is closer to the emergency? Is it van one or van seven? So there would have to be a proportionality about it. Typically, uh, unless it's emergency dispatch, you're not likely to have a reason uh, to track employees at that level. But again, you'd have to look at the specifics. What is the purpose for the tracking? Uh, is, is it a legitimate emergency type scenario as to why uh, the tracking technology but is some, there? To or stop someone skiving off, heading for the golf course or the driving range <laughs> for a couple of hours uh, while they claim they're working. How do you know so much about the skiving activity, Pat? Um, <laughs> The um, In general, what we would say, tracking technologies and technological tracking technologies should not be used in lieu of management supervision and mm. people-based supervision okay. on a proportionate um, basis. We'll be talking to, to Jess later on about this uh, drone hacking technology whereby uh, it's out there where you can actually know where the drone is being flown from as well as where it is. Uh, but that's for another day. But drones generally... 
uh, overlooking people's properties, uh, flying over, gathering information, maybe an auctioneer, uh, maybe a developer. Um, what is the situation as regards people surveilling your property with drones? Yeah, so drones drones are difficult uh, in many respects and we've published guidance previously that uh, suggests that users who are going to deploy a drone, again, one would hope for a legitimate purpose in an area, uh, would um, attempt to create transparency around what they're doing if there's going to be a collection of personal data. So they would do a, a, a mail drop to houses in an area to say, You'll see a drone flying overhead on such and such a date for this this purpose. It's mapping something. Uh, personal data will do. Not they have be the right to do it. Um, anyone can legitimise the collection of personal data in a public place. Uh, I could be if it's your private home, for example, my drone flying over our house could pick up our car regs, the locations of our security cameras, all of that. And that was not deemed to be an offence by your office. And so, again, somebody walking by my house uh, this afternoon could also picture my car registration and and picture the outside of my house. It's in a public place. It's the use of that information um, and, and whether they go on to publish it or use it in a way that infringes rights that can be important. But I think from the outset, you cannot stop the collection of personal data uh, in public places. So anyone can fly over you as you bathe in the sun in your bikini <laughs> without any problem. I tend not to in my back garden, but um, yes. Uh, that is a fact that people can. J- just because the back garden is not a back, back garden is not a public place. Uh, look, I, I suppose we may be talking across purposes. If you're talking about a drone flying at a very low height that uh, was dispatched from my neighbour two doors down into my back garden when I'm sunbathing, then uh, it, clearly there is going to be an issue in terms of invasion of privacy and you'd be taking but that a, up. A high level drone with a telephoto lens will have exactly the same access. And a high-level drone with a telephoto lens is going to be operated uh, potentially by a professional operator who will have to comply with the rules of the GDPR, who will have to use uh, blurring technologies, who will have to avoid the collection of personal information where possible. Generally, it's not the purpose of, of drone collection. Uh, the TikTok story, uh, and uh, again, I believe you're having a meeting with the National Cybersecurity people today. That's right. Um, with a view to um, coming to some conclusion as to the threat um, to our security. I know you already have an investigation of TikTok in terms of uh, any data that might be sent back to China uh, from anyone using uh, TikTok on their phones. Uh, and that's kind of maybe commercial data. But the, the kind of cybersecurity data that they're worried about, do you have concerns um, um, or is it even within your remit to look at espionage? No, it, it's not within our remit. Um, I think there there can be a small level of overlap in terms of what the DPC is looking at. As you said, we're looking at declared commercial transfers to China by a company and looking at the specific circumstances of those transfers, the risks of the particular type of personal data that's transferred, and then looking at what measures, so-called technical, organisational and legal measures the company is putting in place in the context of those specific transfers. The issue of espionage and 
access to information beyond personal data that's not declared in the commercial context is, of course, much broader and outside the remit mm. of a the A matter for the government, in fact, because we know that in Brussels and yes. in Washington and so, so on. A couple of other things. Uh, companies using WhatsApp for groups of employees on their personal phones. I've always thought this is not right. So that question may be about a forced requirement to yeah, join Yeah, that we WhatsApp want you all group. on this particular group so we can message you, I suppose. Uh, I would have my doubts that any employer could force individuals to join a WhatsApp group. Uh, and in general, there should be another means by which an employer can disseminate important information that employees need other than requiring them to sign up to a WhatsApp group. There are so many questions, but one last one. Um, Would you ask uh, the Commissioner about patients' rights to access their medical records should they need to transfer them to a new doctor when the previous doctor's practice has suddenly closed down? This is a very, very big issue and a, a very good question. So individuals, of course, do have rights of access to their medical records, but a particular issue arises as in the scenario your listener outlined where a medical practice closes down uh, overnight. And we are engaging uh, with the Irish Medical Council on this because with we have engaged previously with the Law Society and when in similar circumstances a solicitor's practice closes down overnight, the Law Society has developed uh, very good protocols, procedures and ways by which it can intervene to ensure a continuity and to secure the files We don't have uh, the same scenario arising currently with medical practices and individuals Mm. have been put in considerable difficulties. So case by case, the Data Protection Commission is intervening as it can. Okay, when someone makes uh, a request that perhaps you can access those records. And of course, there's no obligation for someone who retires or is deceased. I mean, where do their records go? Uh, uh, and we believe this has to be rectified and there have to, the, the, the regulator of that profession uh, should engage with us mm. in terms of coming to a better position on that because um, health information is clearly... I'll throw this final one at you uh, because it may be typical of the way we live these days. I live in a small private estate. We would like to put cameras in the car park. We've had cars damaged and people dumping their rubbish in our bins. Can we do that? That's from Lorna. Uh, You certainly can consider it. You can set out the risks that you're trying to address. Uh, You can consider the proportionality of it. And most importantly, you should look at the views of all of the members, because if you put those cameras in the car park and you put them uh, in places where they're monitoring the cars and the bins, Every individual who lives in the state is then being surveilled. Yeah. No, by I'm their just own wondering cameras. in terms of, uh, say, you catch someone in the act and you can identify them, and then you go to the guardian and say, "Here's our CCTV, game set and match." Will the guard? Will that be thrown out in court because of the way it was collected? It, it depends on the legality and the lawfulness of 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 the implementation. But I, I would say in general, we're all quite obsessed about CCTV and cameras. Um, the more we uh, surveil ourselves in every single scenario in which we operate uh, and in ways that may not be proportionate to the level of risk we're trying to address, the more we encroach on our own ability to be free and to live unencumbered. (sighs) The blessing or the curse of GDPR. (laughs) Commissioner for Data Protection, Helen Dixon, thank you very much for uh, joining us. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk.